back to school week and we'll be talking about teachers again, but not so much in the classroom. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Courtney Astolfi, Lisa Garvin, and Laura Johnston. And we have a doozy to begin with. Where but Ohio can you get $9.7 million in bonuses after losing your client $3 billion on their investments? Who are the people being rewarded for such colossal failures and who will be paying the costs, Lisa? The State Teachers Retirement System of Ohio, or STRS, the board will consider today $9.7 million in performance bonuses to its investment association. This is about 90 workers who would be eligible for this money. Spokesman Nick Treniff says incentives are based on one- and five-year investment performance, also a total fund benchmark, which is a group of board-approved stocks and other investments, uh, and which the association he says they did outperform that, but the benchmarks have dropped because of various economic issues. And he said that the fund made good choices despite a weak market. So the fund equals $94.8 billion as of June 2021. The uh, As of 5.30 of 22, this May, it's $91.8 billion. So there's, there's been a loss of $3 billion over a year. Of course, the retired teachers are outraged at these uh, bonuses. They say they finally got a 3% cost of living raise last month. That was their first since 2017. The Ohio Retired Teachers Association Executive Director Robin Rayfield says 20,000 teachers, you know, they represent 20,000 teachers, and inflation is killing those who retired in the 1990s and early 2000s. They're really only making about $1,700 a month in their pension. But these bonuses, have been paid every year without the cost of living dating back to 2018. Yeah, I, I, in full disclosure, eventually I'll be living on some of this money because I'm married to a longtime teacher. This, this fund has been hugely controversial in the past year. We talked about it a few months back because of the lack of cost of living increases, and they finally put one in after years and years. But it is mind-boggling that you can lose $3 billion and be talking about giving out a huge amount of money in bonuses. And that one-year, five-year thing, that's a dodge, right? That's a way to cushion it. So say, well, you know, because it's based on five-year performance, they do get something. It's like they've been failing miserably for the past year. They should suck it up like everybody else. It's an amazing way they run this thing. And you're right. Teachers have been outraged about this for a long time. We get lots and lots of email from teachers that are very upset about the way this thing is run. There's not transparency. The, the people in charge are very smug about that they're the ones in charge. There have been calls to change over the whole management of it. Have we ever heard, and I know what the answer is, but have we ever heard much from Mike DeWine and company on who's running this thing? Have they ever aired any concerns about how teachers are getting it stuck to them. I mean, let's face it, Mike DeWine talks about his love of teachers. And this is a pattern, though, that goes back to at least 2018. I mean, they've awarded at least $7.3 million in bonuses since 2018, the highest being $9.2 million in 2018. And none of these years did teachers get a cost of living raise. So you kind of have to question what's going on here. And full disclosure, I am a, you know, a uh, benefit of the uh, Texas State Teachers Retirement Fund. So I, it's not Ohio, but I'm still, you know, a pensioner. 
Yeah, I, it almost sounds like they need to have a, a complete turnover at the top. This just does not make sense, and it's going to lead to more and more of a lack of confidence in STRS. It's Today in Ohio. We have a Florida man story on Today in Ohio. You know, those strange stories about crimes you see in the news always involving a Florida man. What is a Florida man accused of doing to get him attention on this podcast, Courtney? Yes, so 31-year-old Akil Larry Joseph and a Florida woman, his girlfriend, 30-year-old Alexa Logan, they're charged, uh, you know, in federal court with cyber stalking and using interstate communications to try to commit extortion. The pair were arrested July 13th and their cases going on up here in Cleveland. And, and that's because they they tried to extort and sent a ton of threatening emails, according to investigators, to Summit County Common Pleas Judge Tammy O'Brien. They also sent messages to her ex-husband, her kids, FBI agents, and an unidentified Summit County politician. This case is, it's kind of hard to make sense of. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of ins and outs. It, some of their actions just are, are, it appears to be incoherent here. The Florida couple sent hundreds of emails on a potentially, you know, near daily basis between 2020 and 2022 to the judge and this other group of folks. And at one point they sent photos of what appeared to be a miscarried fetus to, to these officials online. And the connection to Ohio is a little a little tenuous. The FBI affidavit said the judge's ex-husband had a single, you know, sexual encounter with the, the woman in the couple back in 2018. But then what kicked off in the years that followed was just a lot of harassing emails. One of the required details of a Florida man story is it has to be kind of wacko and strange. So when I saw our headline pop up yesterday about the Florida man, I thought, oh, are we being cheesy just to get some some views? But then when I read the story, it's like, no, this actually is a weird and wacko Florida man style story. Like you said, it's hard to make sense of because it makes no sense. Just bizarre that you would spend years harassing somebody with all of these emails and then the picture of the aborted fetus kind of is the capper detail of the whole thing yeah and and it's worth noting that the woman in this couple she's accused of you know telling the judge's ex that she was pregnant with his child she demanded twenty thousand dollars from him and and you know the lawyers tell us that no such child ever existed it was just a ploy at this attempted extortion. So that's why we're seeing the feds involved here. Okay. Well, this does fit as a Florida man story. And I speak as somebody who lived in Florida for nine years. It's today in Ohio. We asked this last week after Playhouse Square announced that it hired the CEO of London's Royal Albert Hall to run Playhouse Square. Why does this sound too good to be true? So why is Craig Hassel leaving one of the world's great cities to run a playhouse in what is a second tier market as much as we love our Playhouse Square? Laura. He sees a lot of opportunity and he thinks that we should not be so down on Cleveland. So he had never heard of Playhouse Square before this job opportunity came along. He's been CEO since 2017 of the Royal Albert Hall and he is a native of Australia, grew up in New South Wales in Sydney and has led the opera Australian Sydney, was managing director of the English National Ballet in Cleveland. So obviously these are big names. 
But he said he came. He's never seen such a concentration of quality venues in one place. And that clinched it for him. He said this was extraordinary. And what is one thing he thinks is really cool about Cleveland is the base of of Playhouse Square. They don't just have the 11 stages. They have a lot of real estate holdings that actually pays for about a third of the annual operating cost of roughly $60 million. And we all know the arts are always struggling to be able to pay for themselves. So because of this and having the stream of money, he thinks there's a lot you could do with it. Also, he says they're only about 35% full. Think about that. We know there's all sorts of great shows that are at Playhouse Squared, but they have tons of 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 space. They have tons of, of availability. And so he wants to be able to capitalize that and really make them full and be an economic driver for the city. And look, Playhouse Square is truly special. It's yes. it's an asset that very few cities, well, almost no cities have. And the fact that Cleveland restored it and has taken such good care of it, it's a, it's a central gathering place. That district just hums right. nonstop. So he's right that it's special. I still don't quite get it, though. I mean, this is a guy that has staged the Olympics a couple of times and is in London. I mean, talk about a theater district. You're in London and he comes here. I'm still not quite sure what he was thinking. I I don't know either. I haven't talked to him. Steve Litt did this story, had an interview with him on Monday. Um, But I mean, even if he comes and he stays for a couple of years, I mean, Gina Vernacci, the current CEO, hasn't been there that long. Before that, that was a long time a leader, I believe. But if you can, and, you know, new ideas, new creativity, new energy, I think it'll be great. I, they don't have to stay here forever. I mean, um, we're right now at downtown has a, a population of about 20,000. It's supposed to reach 30,000 by 2030. And so Hassel told Steve that this is a virtuous economic cycle and he really wants to be part of that. And maybe he's just likes a challenge. I don't know. Mm-hmm. With his international connections, I can't wait to see what he does. But but I, I still it's just such I think everybody had the same reaction. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. right. And and let's see. I, I mean, I, I do expect we'll see some great things out of somebody with that guy's experience. He said that people are saying, hey, keep me in mind. So I think you're right. I think this relationships could be really beneficial to Cleveland. It's today in Ohio. Ohio Lieutenant Governor John Husted continues to do verbal gymnastics to explain how his role in getting the corrupt HB6 passed was not a role at all, despite mounting evidence that he was in it up to his eyeballs. Lisa, what's his latest obfuscation? He keeps popping back up to say, look away, look away, it wasn't me. But he keeps bringing more attention to himself by saying it wasn't me. Yeah, he should probably just let the story go because it keeps growing. On Monday, he He said that he was not involved in the legislative process of House Bill 6 back in 2019. He said that he did encourage that the bill pass publicly and privately, and he stands by that. And he said at the time, a lot of people thought that saving the two nuclear plants in the bill was a good idea. But this is kind of the latest in a long line of things that he said. Starting last November, he answered none when he was asked of his role in the passage of House Bill 6 in the legislative committee process. But the Friday statement that he made emphasized that committee process 
quote unquote, is saying, yeah, that is true, but he's not a member of the legislator, legislature. So he was asked again, he previously told a Columbus TV station after those texts were released about him wanting to extend the House Bill 6 from seven to 10 years. He said that, you know, he was the middleman to share information with the legislature and nothing more. But then he clammed up later when he was asked if he spoke to lawmakers as House Bill 6 moved through the legislature. Legislature. And he said, I've said all I'm going to say on the topic. I'll bet that's not a true statement. I'll bet that he is forced to say more. Here's the problem with with both him and Mike DeWine on this thing, where they said there was a lot of support for bailing out the nuclear plants. That's not really quite true. There was a whole lot of support to not do it. First Energy had sought that for years and years and years. They'd come to our editorial board to beg for support. And John Kasich and the legislature that preceded the current one said no over and over again. No. Mike, Mike DeWine and John Houston come in and Larry Helsurter comes in and they could not pass this fast enough to get it through. They have explaining to do on why. When you had a whole bunch of wise politicians say, no way, we're not doing it. Why the change of heart and why did they work clearly so feverishly to get it done? Larry Householder, of course, is indicted because he took bribes to get this. At least First Energy says we paid him bribes. He's not convicted yet. The DeWine and Houston have not been incriminated criminally, but clearly with the evidence is coming out, they were very active in getting this passed. And for Houston to say, I'm finished talking about this. I think not. Well, and and they're splitting hairs here because, you know, they said that, you know, the committee process, you know, he's not part of that because he's not a member of the legislature. But clearly, according to these texts with, you know, First Energy folks, you know, he was trying to get this extended, which would have meant $450 million more to the taxpayers. Look, look at the tone of the text. They basically describe Houston as their little errand boy doing their bidding, running back and forth between them and the legislature to get more for First Energy. Who were they representing? Mike DeWine and John Houston, the people who voted for them or were they representing this this utility that has been very supportive of them overall? I really think Mike DeWine and John Houston owe it to the citizens of Ohio to sit down and lay out every step they took to get this corrupt bill passed to clear the air. But to say, I'm finished talking about it, like I said, I'm pretty sure that's not true. It's today in Ohio. The Cuyahoga County Board of Elections will make the call on an elections issue we discussed a few weeks back. Whose fate will the board consider, Courtney? Yeah, on Monday, the Board of Elections is going to figure out what to do with State Rep. Shayla Davis. She's run, she wants to run as an independent candidate for the, for the 18th House District. And, you know, Shalira Taylor is also running in that race. She's a Republican. And she's challenging Davis's candidacy as an independent because Davis has been a longtime Democrat. And she was appointed to a Democratic seat earlier this year. So she's definitely established herself as a Democrat. She's currently as a Democrat in office and she's trying to switch to an independent to run and retain her and 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 gain this 18th House District seat. Now Davis made this switch. Um, you know, she said she had missed the deadline to file to run in the Democratic primary. 
because she wasn't planning to run for that seat, but she changed her mind after she said, you know, a bunch of Republican leaning bills that she wasn't pleased with passed through before summer recess. But her decision also came right after a prominent Democrat, Sandra Williams, dropped out of the race. So we have to see if the BOE goes ahead and certifies Davis as an independent candidate and and what they make of that challenge from the Republican running in that race. I don't see how they can allow her to run. If she would have resigned her position and said, I, I can't be a part of the Democratic Party anymore, I'm going to become an independent, that'd be one thing. But she's still sitting in an elected office as a member of a party. And and how do you say, I'm not running as a member of the party, I'm running as an independent? I, I know there's a lot of hypocrisy in our in our party system and that anybody can go in on any primary and ask for whatever ballot they want and switch parties. But this kind of is the height of the hypocrisy. She is sitting in an elected seat as a Democrat. How do you say I'm running as an independent? I don't get it. Well, we'll have to see what the Board of Elections does. It's split party lines. There's two Democrats on the board, two Republicans. The tiebreaker vote is the Secretary of State. But Andrew Tobias in his story notes that Ohio law is is pretty lax when it comes to letting candidates drop party affiliations. There are some limitations that went into effect in the mid-2000s, but Andrew says, you know, it's pretty, pretty loose standards in the state. So we'll have to see what they make of it. But she caucuses with Democrats. I mean, it's it, she's part of the Democratic Party in Columbus. It's not that's you can't say I'm not a Democrat. I'm running as an independent. If she stopped participating as a Democrat in the legislature, she might have some evidence. I, I'll be very surprised if the board allows her to run. And I, I won't be surprised if the board splits on party lines and then Frank LaRose won't let her run because this is the height of hypocrisy. It's today in Ohio. We talked about how Digital C, once considered Cleveland's best chance for widely available and inexpensive broadband, had faded from view, replaced by other programs. Now, though, 1,000 people in Cleveland will get fast broadband courtesy of Digital C and its partner, Facebook. Laura, what's the plan? Yeah, this is good news for four CMHA complex. It's high speed, low cost broadband, costs about $18 a month with internet speeds of up to 50 MBPs. And this is part of that partnership with the parent company Meta. So it's going to be at Addison Square, Wilson Tower, Riverview Tower Apartments, and Scranton Castle. And this is obviously a priority. We've been talking about a long time. All sorts of elected officials from Justin Bibb to Mike DeWine have been talking about how important it is because Internet is like a utility at this point. It's not a luxury. It's something you need to make a living, basically. Yeah, I, it's nice to see them getting back in. And there is a thought that they will be the city's big partner in a coming program involving millions and millions of dollars. It's just been surprising how little they've gotten done in the past four or five years after they really became the number one hope years ago. I completely agree. And Lucas Deprilli has done some really great stories looking at Digital C. But it is good to see that it's happening. Um, they announced another million dollar partnership last week funded by federal grant dollars with Metro Health System to bring Internet to six other CMHA buildings. So that is great news. And um but we, <laughs> Cleveland's pretty bad. We rank last in internet con connectivity among these large American cities. So 
good, good, good that it's happening. I hope it keeps happening. It's today in Ohio. Has anyone tooling down the highway ever seen a highway patrol car on the shoulder and thought, hey, that's a great looking car? I don't think so. I think they think words that we can't speak on a podcast listened to by children. But someone has come up with the notion that Ohio patrol cars are pretty. What do we know, Lisa? Well, I'll tell you what, uh, you know, they might, you might not want to see them on the side of the road, but I've always had this fantasy of wanting to get behind the wheel of a DPS, you know, trooper car and just let it let it go. <laughs> but the, the American Association of State Troopers is holding their best looking cruiser contest with the winner featured on its 2023 calendar cover. So the Ohio State Troopers are asking for votes via Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And they finished second in last year's contest to the Kentucky State Police. Uh, the voting began August 8th and it goes through 5 o'clock uh, August 25th. As of Monday this week, California was way in the lead. They have over 32,000 votes for theirs. Kentucky in second place with 24,000. Georgia is in third with 22,402 votes for their cruisers. Ohio is currently in seventh place. We only have 9,940 14 votes. They can still make the calendar with that, but they won't make the cover. So I kind of went and looked, you know, at the vehicles. I knew that they were like Dodge Chargers, but they are a silver Dodge Charger. They have a, a yellow lettering and then they have the winged wheel logo and they have red and blue lights. So I kind of had to look at the Kentucky you know, Charger, you know, just to see they have the same model car, but they have all blue lights on the top and they have like this blue stripe that kind of goes across the side of the car. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see, but you know, if you want Ohio to be on the cover, you got to go and vote. Can I add in here that Chris, I was driving in Massachusetts on Sunday and I actually saw a cruiser and was like, that's a really pretty cruiser. <laughs> it was teal and navy, like ooh. a sage green teal kind of color. Yeah, it was like aqua. I was like, ooh, that's a pretty, pretty highway patrol car. So I actually I, I, did think that. I guess nobody thinks they're pretty when they're looking at them through their rear view. The rear view mirror with the lights on <laughs> would definitely affect I, my my view. The Ohio one, though, I'm surprised that that gets consideration because it seems so dated. It seems like, you know, Mr. Electrowatt or some 1950s symbol. You would think that they would try to update the look once in a while. I mean, the wing, the winged thing is just, you know. I mean, you've like seen it's... our license plate, right? That's what happens when they try to update things. <laughs> they get worse. I can't believe there's a contest for best looking cruiser. I can't believe really... there's a there's a calendar. Who wants that calendar? I, I, right. I mean, let's face it. When you see one of those cars on the side of the road, the feeling in the pit of your stomach is dread, not ooh, except if you're Laura driving in Massachusetts. You are listening to Today in Ohio. We talked last week about how crime has largely stayed the same or dropped a bit this year in Cleveland, and we had not heard much from Cleveland public safety officials, particularly with respect to what they face with the dropping number of police officers as they try to fight crime. They finally stood up in front of the media yesterday, Courtney. They talked about several topics. What were they? Yeah, one of the big points of discussion yesterday, Mayor Bibb was there, the police chief was there, a bunch of city officials. And one of the big topics of discussion was staffing because it's kind of a hard conversation to avoid the department's few hundred officers down where it needs to be. And part of this mid-year report that they were explaining shows how many officers are 
retirement eligible in the next few years. And those numbers are pretty troubling. Council's concerned about looming retirements given our low staffing levels. And we heard from Mayor Bibb yesterday that a, a new piece of the city's strategy to try and increase those levels. Uh, Mayor Bibb said that the city's going to be hiring a marketing firm to do a recruitment plan and really dive into getting more candidates into the academy. And, but, you know, not, not all great news. You know, Chief Drummond told us that he expects staffing to get, you know, it could get worse before it gets better is what Drummond told us. So we're definitely, even if crime's starting to taper off, which they did talk about how some violent crimes are down from their 2021 pandemic highs, others are around the same, but there have been some drop-offs. But but as far as tackling the 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 staffing problem, we're not we're not over the hump there yet. And it sounds like rough days could be ahead. I was surprised that the consent decree also was discussed that they're trying to get out from under it, which I'm not crazy about. The consent decree has kept that department honest. The the monitor has been the watchdog who has repeatedly come forward with ways that the police are not doing what they're supposed to do. And the longer they're under the consent decree, the longer we have that official watchdog. What did they say about it? Yeah, Mayor Bibb had signaled he, he's looking to get out of the consent decree as soon as possible. Now, what that means what the timeline is that's really mushy who knows what an actual timeline is but he's he's driving at this idea of getting out as soon as possible you know i think most cities under consent decrees want to do that right and um but the particulars like you've noted the monitor continues to to ping cleveland police for various different problems they've come a long way they noted in this mid-year report that their use of force incidents have been on the decline for several years. So there's some improvement there, but other progress still lies ahead. So I'm a little interested to see what does come with the consent decree timing and what the city asks the court. It's a far more professional department than it was before the consent decree. The, the police department had been disarray for years. That consent decree did greatly change and improve its relationship with the community. You just wonder, once the watchdog goes away, does it start to revert back? That's why having that in place has been so helpful. It's today in Ohio. The South Euclid Municipal Court judge gets talked about way more than almost any other municipal court judge, or I should say former She's been in the news repeatedly for fighting with her city and fighting with residents and just being controversial as all get out. She quit abruptly not long ago, but she was in the news again last night. Laura, why? Absolutely. The FBI is requiring the city to turn over some subpoenas and a wide range of information about Williams Byers and how she ran her court and the court's finances. So, yeah, this broke late last Late yesterday, the city spokesman said in a statement, the city takes it seriously, will cooperate with the FBI, but wouldn't provide any more information. Uh, Her attorney said in a brief phone interview, and this is Adam Faris who got all this information, so hats off to Adam. He said, we're anxious to cooperate. The subpoenas were not necessary. Most of the documents they are seeking are public records, and the ones that aren't, she would have been happy to provide. As the editor of a reporter who 
asked for a lot of public records from that court. They were not easy to come by at the time. I don't know that it would be different with the FBI, but what they're looking for, um, two subpoenas. One sought recorded city council meetings that touched on the court's finances between March and June of this year. And a second was on the employment records, including how much the judge was paid, any unpaid furlough time during the pandemic, and then the bank account information she used for her direct deposit. They wanted personnel action, including the name of her spouse, her daily and monthly work schedule, and a list of her current and former supervisors, which is interesting. Well, there were a couple of recent red flags that I think you you that were like red flags for a bull for the FBI. Mm-hmm. In a recent story, we reported that city council said they thought her books might not be auditable. That's a red flag. And then the other red flag was she claimed that she had used her own money for a recent trip. And it turned out she had used the city's money, which is a red flag. We know that she traveled a lot on Mm -hmm. the public dime. We know that she used court funds as her personal little account to direct and did not work closely with city officials. So I, I would not be surprised if the FBI did not put somebody on this to do a forensic audit. The FBI looks for red flags and stories. I suspect if if the Cayuga County rams through its purchase of the toxic site for the jail, the FBI will be paying attention to that too, because it makes no sense not to leave that for the next county executive. And the same with the medical mart. Such a rush of public spending is a red flag. I'm glad the FBI is paying attention. The citizens of South Euclid deserve an accounting of what's gone on in that crazy court. This doesn't change the drive to get rid of that court altogether and merge with another district, does it? Not as far as I know. I mean, if if I were a voter in that district, I would say, look, here's another reason, because it is with a single city court and most uh, municipal courts at this point are all combined in order to have some kind of efficiency and save some money. But yeah, uh, Adam's story says that she spent at least $20,000 in taxpayer money for 20 trips over a five-year period, another sixty grand in travel expenses for her staff. Um, we've documented places like France, Panama, and Hawaii that she traveled to. But it's, I mean, those are past. That's been happening for at more than a half a decade, right? So we're just looking at the current uh, yeah. finances. But think about the timing. She summarily yeah. quits. They have somebody temporarily appointed that probably can't make heads or tails of what's going on. I would not be at all surprised if the city itself isn't the instigator of this investigation, that they said, FBI, there's a mess here. We really are worried about it. Can you come in with your subpoena power and figure it out? So well, good right. for the there's FBI. A lot of contention there for years. Yeah, we're glad the FBI's there because that's how you you settle these things out. It's Today in Ohio, and that wraps up the Wednesday episode. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Come back Thursday. We'll be talking about the news again. 